0: All right, so this evening, we are looking at uh, Article 7, and it's a it's a short article, uh, which is good. It means we should get through it in a timely manner. Uh, article 7, Eternal Life, and if you didn't get a chance to read it, let me just read it to you. Um, of course, if you have your phones, you can always pull it up on online. And Article 7 says, and this is... Life eternal, that we might know Him, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom He hath sent. And on the contrary, the Lord will render vengeance in flaming fire to them that know not God and obey not the gospel of Jesus Christ. And uh, so I think that this is really um, an important paragraph um, to to include in a confession of faith. And for us to go over, um, you know, it may seem like this you know, isn't it kind of superfluous to have a statement like this in a confession of faith? I mean, we all know what eternal life is. But I do think it's important because so often um, when Christians think about eternal life, when they think about um, salvation or what it means to be saved, oftentimes they think in terms of escaping from hell, right? Or going to heaven, um, or having our sins uh, forgiven, right? That that's what it means to be saved. That's what it means to have eternal life, as the name implies, right? Um, but when we think of eternal life only in those terms, we really end up just cheapening the gospel, and we 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 truncate the gospel, because as the paragraph will actually especially the text that they cite, and and as we'll see, um, eternal life is much more than just going to heaven. It's much more than just avoiding hell. It's much more than just having our uh, sins uh, forgiven. Uh, So, for example, uh, the first reference that they cite is John 17, 3, and notice how Jesus defines what is eternal life. John seventeen three, beginning of his high priestly prayer, and there Jesus says, and this is eternal life. So if you're looking for a definition, here it is. This is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Right? That, that they know you. So, eternal life is, is not just about avoiding hell. Um, it's not just about going to heaven. Eternal life is about having a, a personal, loving, intimate, covenantal relationship with the living God. Right? That's, what, that's what Jesus is talking about, that this is eternal life, that they may know you, you know the only true God, and that they may know Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And so it's not just knowing about God. It's not just knowing about Jesus. It's not just knowing who God is. It's not just knowing who Jesus is or what he has done or even intellectually accepting the truths about Jesus and about God because Satan and all of the demons do that, right? I mean, I've, I've said this before. Satan knows, without a doubt, Jesus is the Son of God. Satan knows that Jesus is God incarnate. The incarnation is no debate with Satan. He understands the complete deity of Christ. Satan believes that the Bible is the inerrant and authoritative Word of God. It sounds crazy to think that way, but Satan is an inerrantist. He does believe that. He knows Christ died on the cross for sins, and he knows without a doubt that Jesus rose from the dead in bodily form three days later. The resurrection, I mean, Satan does not question the, the, the historicity of the resurrection of Christ three days after his death. None of that means that he's saved. right? You, you, can, you can intellectually embrace all of these great theological and doctrinal truths <laughs> And that doesn't mean that you have eternal life because it doesn't mean that you actually know God. That's really crazy. Right. Uh It, It doesn't mean that you know God. It doesn't mean that you know Christ because that's what it means to have eternal life. And the knowing that is being talked about, both in the confession, and I think the knowing that Jesus is talking about, um, is what Paul describes in Philippians 3 8. Paul in Philippians 3 8 says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I count everything in this world as, as rubbish. It's a waste of time. I'm not going to pursue money. I'm not going to pursue possessions. I'm not going to pursue fame. I mean, you know, everything that this world has to offer, Paul is saying, I, I count it all as just a waste of time because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Right? There is nothing in this world, in the mind of Paul, that was more valuable than knowing Christ, having an intimate, loving relationship, an, a covenantal relationship with, with Christ. Yeah, Bobby. Um,
1: when you say pursuing gain, uh, fame, so on and so forth, is, are you saying because there's the chance that those things would become idols in your life,
0: Well, not just that because there's a chance that they could uh, you know, become idols in your life, but, but if that's what you're pursuing, then you know, where are your priorities, right? I mean, if that's really the thing that drives you in this world is fame or wealth, then obviously you're not keeping the first great commandment, which is to love God with all your heart, all your might, all your strength, all your soul— Right, the first great commandment essentially tells us that we should spend um, all of our lives and all of our energies pursuing God, right? Pursuing God, which is a great book by A. W. Tozer, by the way, uh, the pursuit of God. Um, So, you know, now that's not to say that uh, that it's a sin to want to be successful in the sense of wanting to be the best that we can at whatever vocation God has called us to right? I mean, Ephesians uh, Ephesians, um, 6 is quite clear that we ought to work as though we are working unto the Lord. So whatever vocation God calls us to, whether we're a, you know, a a plumber, a lawyer, a doctor, you know, a builder, um, we ought to strive to be the very best. And in doing that, we may very well become successful. And there's certainly no sin in being wealthy. Solomon was wealthy. Job was wealthy. Abraham was wealthy. Wealth in and of itself is not a sin, um, the Bible doesn't say money is the root of all evil, but the love of money is the root of all of all evil.
1: So then you're saying basically pursuing those things is not sin, so you would pursue those things but as
0: unto the Lord. Right. If you are pursuing those things for the glory of God, then there's no sin in that. Right. Um,
1: but if you only pursue those things at some point right. it seems to me they would become
0: idle. Yeah, yeah. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right right so 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 this is what how paul understood um you know paul lived out and uh, essentially um you know I, what i hear paul saying i i hear the echoes of, of jeremiah 923 and this passage may have very well been in paul's mind as he wrote this but i hear i hear the echoes of jeremiah 923 uh 23 and uh God delights in the individual whose greatest desire is to know God, to know God and to understand God. Because in the end, God desires, God desires not just to save people. In other words, God desires not just to deliver people from hell, right? God desires to be known. God desires to be known, I mean, this is why... What's that? What was
1: that?
0: Jeremiah nine twenty three and 24. That's, it. That's something he has passed on to his children. We all desire to be known. Right. To be truly. Yeah. Known. It's part of what it means to be made in the image of God. Right? We have this natural desire to be known, particularly by, by people that we love and people who profess to love us, people that we have a relationship with, we have a desire to be known by them. We want them to know us. So we share you know, our intimate secrets with one another and our fears and our, our excitements and our joys and whatever else, right? This is why the invisible God made himself known. I mean, when you go back to the garden, God is invisible. Had God not revealed himself to Adam and Eve, they never would have known God. God had to make himself known to Adam and Eve. And he did that because he desires to be known. Um, The more we know God, I mean, God desires to be glorified. He desires to be worshipped. But he understands that the more we know him, the more we see his magnificence and his beauty and his sovereignty, the more we will worship him, the more we will love him, the more we will adore him, the more we will glorify him. I mean, he goes back to the Again, you think of the, the first question of the Westminster Catechism, right? What is the chief end of man? Who knows the answer? Glorify God and enjoy him forever. Right. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, right? Uh, to, uh, to know God. Um, I think the Baptist Catechism says the chief end of man is to know God and enjoy Him forever. Um, but uh, you know, that is why we were created. We were created to know Him, to enjoy Him, to have a relationship with Him. Adam and Eve were created in that relationship with Him, and of course they broke the covenant, and therefore they were um, that that relationship then becomes uh, strained by sin. You know, they still continue to have a relationship um, with God after the fall, but it's been damaged by sin. It is now a a broken relationship, and so knowing God is uh, eternal life. That that's what it means to truly. Be saved. That's what it means to truly possess eternal life. It reminds me of a question that John Piper once asked in a sermon, and I, um, I would have loved to have been there to see the uh, the response on people's faces. But I was listening to a sermon by him years ago, and and he asked this question to the congregation. It may have been a conference, so maybe it was the audience. But he said, "If heaven were every bit as beautiful." and wonderful and magnificent as you can that you imagine that it is but Jesus isn't there would you still want to go there and then he said if you answered yes to that question then you're not saved right you're not saved because heaven without Christ is not heaven it's hell right because Heaven and see, this is where a lot of Christians make the mistake. Heaven is not our reward. Heaven is the place where we receive our reward. Christ is our reward, right? When we get to see Christ face to face, when we get to fall at His feet and worship Him and spend all of eternity with Him, that's our reward, um, not not heaven. Um, Heaven without Christ is not heaven um, at all. Again, you think of the words of Paul in Philippians chapter 3. Paul understood this because look at Philippians 3. I didn't finish the verse on purpose. Let's look at the rest of the verse. Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake i have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish as a waste of time in order that i may gain christ paul says i want christ i count everything as loss i'm willing to sacrifice it all i'm willing to give it all up so that i might gain christ is who he wants yeah Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it does. Or, or or refuge. Yeah. I I count it all as just garbage, right? Um in 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 when Paul compares the best that this world has to offer to Christ, he says what this world offers is garbage. It's it's refuge. I mean, it, it's nothing in comparison. And so he says I I am willing to sacrifice it all. Uh and boy did he sacrifice it all, right? I mean, you look at how he describes what he went through at the end of uh, 2 Corinthians. We just read this recently in one of our uh, family, time, uh, family, worship, family worship times. Um, verse uh, 2 Corinthians 11, verse 23, he says, I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, And often near death, five times I received at the hands of the Jews of forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship through many sleepless nights. In hunger and thirst, often without food. In cold and exposure, right, Paul suffered a lot because he understood that the comforts of this world is nothing in comparison. He says, I'm I'm willing to sacrifice it all in order that I may gain Christ, right? Christ was the apple of his eye. He was the prize that Paul was driving to his entire life. Everything was about driving toward Christ, knowing Christ, savoring Christ, loving Christ, because he knew that that's where everlasting joy and contentment and satisfaction come from. I have yeah. A
1: question. Yeah. yeah. So how do you, in your way of thinking, transfer that idea? Mm-hmm. Shipwrecked, stoning, rods, all of that, all things which are dangerous yeah. and a danger. I mean, if you cause physical harm, almost to death. Yeah. How do dangers do we need to be kind of aware of as far as this is? Because there are there's da- there's sure. dangers. We know Satan is obviously extremely dangerous, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So do, what, what do you see? How do you look at that? Because we all there's things we all can
0: get on the wrong side if we're not careful. Right? Sure. I mean, you know, it always depends on the culture. I mean, we're not in as much danger here as we would if we lived in, you know, Iraq or Iran or North Korea. Um, Right. Um, But but, you know, but even in the United States, I mean, you know, we could say that we're not in as much danger here as we would be in, say, downtown San Francisco or Chicago, um, you know, or uh, or even Toronto, Canada. Um, You know, when we lived there back in, uh, you know, uh, 2000 and uh, 2001, 2002, um, you know, we had students from the seminary who would go out street witnessing Uh, in downtown toronto toronto is a city of six million people um and uh you know i had one friend of mine they they came back one night and he said you know i've been physically persecuted for the name of christ for the first time in my life and uh, i asked him well what happened he said well i walked up to a guy and i just said hey you know can i talk to you about jesus christ do you know who jesus christ is and he said, the guy said, you want to know what I think about Jesus Christ? And he just hauled off and smacked him, I mean, hard. And then he walked away. And, uh, and he said, I was shocked at first, but then I rejoiced because I've been persecuted for the name of Christ, right? So yeah, the bottom line is, I think, you know, going to your, uh, your, your question, is if we live our lives for the glory of Christ, if we live our lives just to please Christ and to make his name known, um, persecution is going to come. You know, Paul didn't go looking for trouble. Trouble found him because Paul was very open about what he believed. He walked into synagogues and said, let me tell you about Jesus, right? Um, Try that today. Go find a local mosque and walk in and say, let me tell you about Jesus and see how that goes over for you, right? (laughs) I mean, Paul knew what the potential response was going to be. And in some synagogues, they believed him. But it's recorded in Acts. There were, there's at least one where we're told he was drugged out of the synagogue and stoned. Um, you know, Paul knew that was a possibility. Uh, but he lived his life for the glory of Christ. And when you do that, when you live as Paul did, just pursuing Christ, wanting to glorify Christ in every area of your life, there's going to be persecution. People are not going to like you. It's just the way it is. You know, yeah.
1: You know, it talks about in Mark, which um, sadly to say, I've never noticed this, it talks in Mark about Jesus' family thought he had gone off. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> His rocker, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, and they went up to go
0: get him to protect him. Right. Because they thought he had almost like Paul kind of turned into a madman in what he was saying right. to people. Yeah, yeah. Never, never noticed that verse before. Mm-hmm, yeah. <laughs> well, you can imagine, I mean, you know, and, and of course, growing up with Jesus, they had to have noticed there's something different about our older brother, right? Yeah. Like, and Mary like, especially. <laughs> right. But when he starts saying things like, anyone who has seen me has seen God. Yeah. Right? Uh, okay. Okay. You know, <laughs> that... That, that probably had to be difficult um, for his family to accept, even for Mary, because it was even difficult for the disciples. I mean, the disciples at first were shocked by some of his statements. You know, they don't fully recognize until the very end who he is. And it's really not even until after the resurrection that they recognize who he fully is. Right. Um, so leading up until that point, you know, very likely even, even Mary, with the miraculous conception would have you know, she knew he was different, obviously, right? Yes. But I don't think she fully understood who he was until much later. He's um so but uh but yeah, he even his own I family. Bobby
1: because I never know when I'm with him what he's going to say to people and whether he's gonna get slugged. <laughs> <laughs> I mean that. Because I'm more timid that way. I'll keep my mouth shut because I don't want to you know, the yeah. Lord said to live a quiet life. Well, I know he doesn't mean as far as spreading the gospel. Right,
0: right, <laughs> yeah. Not, not not, that way, not that way. So eternal life is knowing Christ, right? And the evidence of eternal life is a desire to know Christ and to please Christ. If eternal life is knowing Christ, then obviously the evidence of eternal life is this desire to want to know Christ and to please Christ, because this is why, this is why legalism won't work, right? Legalism won't work because the evidence of eternal life is not doing that, right? The evidence of eternal life is knowing. That's what Jesus said in Matthew chapter, in John chapter seventeen. This is eternal life that they may know you, and that they may know the Son Jesus Christ. So the evidence of True conversion is not the doing. It is what's in here, right? It is a desire to know God. It is a desire to please God. It is what we see Paul talking about in Philippians chapter 3. I count everything that this world has to offer as rubbish in light of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. I count it all lost, that I may gain Christ. And, uh, you know, we were having a conversation at our home uh just recently about this like what is because when you talk about sanctification i mean sometimes christians can get hung up on this like how you know how much fruit needs to be in your life for there to you know to to know that that's the evidence of salvation i mean you know some people really struggle with sin others seem to not struggle so much with sin ultimately the evidence is where's the desire of your heart right because if the desire of your heart is is to love god to know god to please god that's going to manifest itself in the way that you live right so these these you know so-called christians who say well i said the prayer and i've been baptized and now i just you know i live like the devil because hey it's faith alone right they don't know god they don't know christ they have an intellectual knowledge of him and they might have all the right answers and they know to do the right things but if the heart's desire is not there then there is no real salvation. This is precisely the point at which the Jews missed the mark. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter ten, so right? While
1: this. you're looking that up, so that doing is just something that just becomes natural to us, like breathing.
0: Yes, yes. It's not something that we 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 have to do. It's not something that we feel forced to do. It's something that that we want to do. Right. You know, we we like because we right. Because we enjoy it, right? We enjoy it. Um, and uh, yeah, the old person dies hard. I mean, there are still some sins that we struggle with. But our heart's greatest desire is to, to mortify those sins, right? Um, you know, living for God, living, striving to live in obedience to His Word is, yeah, something that, that the believer just enjoys doing and wants to do. And doesn't feel forced to do it. So Paul says in Romans chapter 10, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. They have a zeal for God. You know, they're they're out there, well, they're living the law, they're doing all this stuff. But then he says, But not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to god's righteousness for christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes in other words they missed the they missed the mark by missing christ right eternal life is not about doing it's not about keeping the law it's not about having a zeal for god or a zeal for the law it's about knowing christ that's what jesus said this is eternal life that they may know you god the father and that they may know jesus christ the son If Christ is the source of eternal life, as Hebrews 5.9 says, then to not know Christ is to not possess eternal life. right? Hebrews 5.9 says that Christ is the source of eternal life. So if you're going to have eternal life, you have to know Christ. Um, Not just know about Him. It's not an intellectual knowledge. It is a covenantal relationship with Christ. So then our... um, The confession goes on to say in the second sentence, And on the contrary, the Lord will render vengeance in flaming fire to them that, one, know not God, and two, obey not the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is pretty much a direct quote from 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 and 8, which they actually cite in the confession. But 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 and 8, says, And to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right, so they're in the confession, they're pretty much quoting that passage. So God's wrath will come upon those who, number one, don't know God. That is, they don't have a loving covenantal relationship with uh, with God, and they do not obey the gospel. I mean, that was the first command Jesus gave, according to Mark chapter 1, verse 15. In Mark 1, the very first words out of Jesus' mouth after he's baptized is, Repent, um, for the kingdom of God is at hand, and believe the gospel. Right? Repent and believe the gospel. So that, that's a commandment. And those who do not obey that commandment, those who don't repent of their sins, turn from living life their way, hence the uh, you know, the quote unquote carnal Christian who thinks that they're saved, but they're still living life in sin, right? Salvation is repenting and believing. It's turning from your old life and putting your faith in Christ and believing the gospel, which we talked about on Sunday, right? And, And and what is the gospel? The gospel is that we are all sinners in need of a savior. We are all on our way to hell. And Christ, in His amazing mercy, steps out of the glories of heaven, takes on human form, lives the perfect life of obedience to the law on our behalf, dies on on the cross to absorb the wrath of God on behalf of sinners. And if we believe that for ourselves and we trust in Christ's work in His life, death, and resurrection, then His perfect righteousness is credited to us by faith, and his death on the cross atones for our sins. It covers our sins from the eyes of a holy God. Um, and all of that is received by faith. Right? That is, that is the gospel. And so he's, they say, On the contrary, the Lord will render vengeance and flaming fire to them that do not know God and do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think it's important to note the language that they say of vengeance in flaming fire. Right, I think it's important to to kind of take note of that, because there are some uh, evangelicals even today, uh, some of these evangelicals in past history are quite reputable, uh, who believe that uh, place is not a uh, hell is not a place of eternal torment. Um, they believe, or there are some who believe that there there is no hell. You know that you really just you know they believe in basically annihilationism. Um, probably the most famous person uh, to hold to that view was John Stott. Uh, A lot of people are surprised to know that. John Stott did not believe that people perish eternally in hell. Um, Yet, I mean, I would encourage you to read, you know, a lot of his writings on everything else except for that. He wrote one of the best books on the atonement. You know, The Cross of Christ by John Stott is a wonderful book. Um, But he was one of those, right? And so what do we do with that? Um, You know, they say vengeance and flaming fire— um, well, I think the Bible is clear. Number one, that those who are in hell are conscious, um, and we can look at the various scripture passages. But we, if you think about the um, in Luke chapter sixteen verses nineteen to thirty-one, there's the uh, the 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 story that Jesus gives about uh, Lazarus who dies outside the home of the the rich ruler, right? And uh, Lazarus goes to heaven. The rich ruler goes to hell. Now, there's a lot of debate theologians aren't sure is this is this just a parable or is jesus actually telling like is this a real story that he has knowledge of um no one can really know for sure but whether it's a real story or whether it's a parable even parables communicate truth right biblical truth parables communicate reality right and so jesus gives this story and in this story um, the rich ruler is conscious of where he is, and he's talking to Abraham and saying, you know ask Lazarus to uh, to 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 bring me a drop of water you know because I'm tormented in this place right that parable would make no sense if hell was not real right if human beings simply cease to exist, if unbelievers if unbelievers cease to exist at death then that parable is pointless for jesus to even tell it it makes no sense right the only reason it has meaning is because people are consciously aware of their existence in hell and they are tormented right what's what's the incentive i mean mm-hmm. you know eat drink and be merry for tomorrow we die and then once we die we're not going to remember anything anyways so that would just it really would it really would um you know so i think the bible is clear that hell is real and people are are consciously aware of their existence there the bible in many places describes hell as a place of eternal torment it uses that language eternal torment uh look at uh, matthew let's go to matthew chapter 9 Right. Eternal punishment. I
1: mean, it's eternal. Right. So it's like we'll, we'll just take, we'll take that word out of there. I mean, it's, Yeah. Yeah. It's
0: yeah. Awesome. I mean it's 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 found all over the place but you know even if you just limit limit it to the words of Jesus it is found in so many places. Matthew 9:48 um Jesus says what? uh oh. Okay, look at uh, 8.12. Okay, so in Matthew, we'll start at verse 11. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. While well, the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Right, so I just wanted to point out that weeping and gnashing of teeth, right? Right. It is a place of torment. That same language is used in, well, I have 948, but obviously nine, not 948, someplace in Matthew chapter 9. Was it Mark 948? Where their worms do not die and the fire is not quenched by chance? Probably, probably Mark 948, yes. I'll read that again. Uh, where their where the worm does not die. The worm is a reference to the unbeliever who's there squirming in pain, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, right? These people are engulfed in some sort of excruciating pain, and it's unceasing. It's unceasing. And we see that kind of language as particularly the gnashing of teeth um, in... uh, Let's see, I think Matthew 13, what does Matthew 13, 42 say? We go to Matthew 13, 42. Uh, da, 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 and throw them into the fiery furnace in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, right? Jesus says that exact same phrase in Matthew alone, also in Matthew 13, 50, Matthew twenty two thirteen, 13, Matthew 24, 51, 25, 30. He says it again in Luke chapter 13, verse 28. I mean, multiple times. They will be thrown into you know that place, the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Um yes. Yeah, I have a question
1: as far as what your take is, because I've heard preaching that denotes that there's definitely some wild men that will need their levels of hellfire. In other words, everybody doesn't cook at five fifty. <laughs> some people might be cooking at like eight ninety and- Right. Right. They're all, they're
0: all
1: burning <coughs> and weeping and gnashing, yeah.
0: but there's, there's of it maybe. Yes. I think that's right. I think I think that hell is not the same for everyone. I think there are degrees of hell. And um and, and I get that primarily um from a passage where Jesus says that he who sins uh much will be um beaten beaten with many lashes, but he who sins little will be beaten with few. Right? And so so um in one of the gospels
1: uh,
0: um, Somebody find that and let us know where that is. but, but Jesus says, he who, he who sins much will be beaten with many lashes, and he who sins little will be beaten with few. Um, and, he, and he's talking about the the afterlife. Um, but he makes clear there, I mean, right there, just in those words, that that not everyone receives the same punishment, and that makes sense because it 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 correlates with heaven. Not everyone receives heaven is not going to be the same for everyone, right? Right. I mean, I mean, our, the rewards are different, and we get that from the parable where Jesus uh, talks about the the master who goes away on a long journey. There are several parables like this, and he gives to one servant you know five shekels to another two to another one, right And at the end of it, uh, you know, those who did well, you know, he, he in, in one parable he says, I will make you an overseer of, of ten cities. And in another one he says, I will make you an overseer of five cities, right? And so the faithful servants aren't all given the same rewards. Um, and so that that makes sense as well. God is a God of justice. And so, you know, the bottom line is, um, hell is not the same for Adolf Hitler, as it is for Mother Teresa, right? Because I think Mother Teresa is in hell. I mean, she not a believer. She's a Catholic. She held to the whole work salvation thing, but let's face it, she was a pretty darn good person, and she did a lot of good, right? Um, but nonetheless, being good is not what gets us into heaven, right? But she's not going to experience hell in the same way as someone like Adolf Hitler or Pol Pot or Joseph Stalin. Right? Um, there is a special place reserved for people like that. Um, and so, yeah, I think that, I think that is correct. Yeah. Conversely to that,
1: too, Paul said we're going to race to win. wind. Right. So the idea is we're all trying to go for,
0: quote, the right. first prize. Right. Well, and you think of things like, you know, Second Corinthians 5.10, where Paul says that we will all stand before the day, the day of judgment, where we will each receive our rewards according to what we have done. Right in accordance with what we have done. Right, so those who do more, you know, all believers get into heaven. Uh, but uh, yeah, but I, I don't I don't expect to get anything near what Charles Spurgeon's going to get. You know, <laughs> I'm just going to be happy to be there, <laughs> even if it's a nosebleed seat. I'll be happy to be there. Um, Luke twelve forty eight. Will you read it? But the one who did not. Right, right. So there's there's different degrees of punishment. Um, So and and I think that's true. And you see that in the Old Testament though as well. You know, God is is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In the Old Testament, not every sin was punished the same. Right? There were some sins where you could offer uh, a sacrifice. There were other sins where uh, manslaughter, for example, you would be banished to a city of refuge, and you had to live there until the high priest died. There was no sacrifice you could offer. But they weren't going to put you to death either. But you used to live in the city of refuge. And then there were other sins where you're going to be put to death, period. Right? If you blaspheme the name of God, there is no offering that you can provide, and you're not going to live in the city of refuge. We're going to drag you out and we're going to stone you to death. Um, homosexuality was another one. Adultery was another one. Right? Sexual sins, all sexual sins, God said, stone them. Right? There is no offering that they can provide. So even in the Old Testament, not every sin was punishable in the same way and to the same degree. Which also teaches us a lesson that while all sin is offensive to God there are degrees of it. Right? Of course we need to be careful with you know, oh well this is a little white sin. Right? There's no such thing. Sin is sin. Sin is sin. Um, But some sins are far worse than others. Right? And in the eyes of God he sees it that way um, as well. Okay. So little tangent there. Uh, last passage I want to read is, is Revelation 20, 2010. Revelation twenty 10. Uh, I'll start at verse 9. And they, uh, and they marched up over the broad plain and the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented tormented day and night forever and ever, right? So it's, it's endless and it is torment. So I think the Bible is quite clear on that point and I appreciate the fact that the authors of the 1646 say that he will render vengeance in flaming fire. Um, also important to note that God's wrath will come upon them that do not believe. Right. Or let me rephrase that. Um, God's wrath will not simply come upon them who do not believe, but God's wrath remains on them who do not believe. Right. It's not like he will be angry, but that God is angry and simply will continue to be angry. We see that in several places. We can look at John three thirty six, for example. Three John three, three thirty six. Jesus says, "Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him." Right. Um, another one is Romans one eighteen. Oh, yeah. Romans one eighteen. Says For the wrath of God is, currently, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Right, And so the Bible does not tell us, again, that God is going to become angry at those who refuse to bow the knee to the Lordship of Christ, to those who refuse to believe in the gospel, but rather that God is angry with them right now. His anger burns against them He's restraining his anger, but at some point he will not restrain his anger. That's what hell is, right? Um, Hell is, you know, what is hell? Let me talk about that just briefly uh, since we kind of got on that subject. Um, Hell is not eternal separation from God. You hear that all the time. Hell is not eternal separation from God because several reasons. First of all, God is omnipresent, right there is no place where god is not right so um someone in one of my reformed teaching groups asked that question recently is god in hell and i was pleased to see that a whole bunch of people said yes right because god is omnipresent which means that god hell can't be a place where god is not god is everywhere um so that's that's number 1 number 2 eternal separation from god is what unbelievers want Right? Unbelievers are at enmity against the things of God, according to Romans. Unbelievers hate God. They despise the things of God. Right? They live their whole lives shaking their fist at God, saying, Stay out of my life. Right? Let me live the way. The idea of being separated from the one that they despise would actually end up being heaven for them. Right? Oh, good, we're finally rid of that tyrant. Right, That God is always trying to tell us how to live our lives. Um, that, is not, that is not what heaven is or what hell is right? hell rather for the unbeliever they are immersed in the one thing that terrifies them the most and what is that God God actually hell is a place where unbelievers are immersed in the unmitigated presence and blazing glory of God Hell is a place where unbelievers are immersed into the unmitigated and blazing presence of God's glory. Because when you think about it, and you go back to the Old Testament, right? Moses said, I want to see your face. What does God say to him? No man can see my face and live. You you cannot see the full glory of God and survive. It would incinerate you, right? Um, Isaiah. Uh, Isaiah chapter six. He only sees the, the 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 end of of God's robe, and he begins to tremble and says, "Woe is me! I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live in the midst of unclean people." Right? He recognizes I am standing in the presence of the holy God, and he's terrified by it. You see that in the New Testament, you know Peter throws the net over one side of the boat; every fish in the Sea of Galilee jumps in. And he recognizes that he's standing in the presence of holiness and says what? Depart from me. Go away from me. I'm a sinful man, right? The demons, when they come across Jesus and recognize who he is, they become terrified. What are you going to do to us? Don't torment us, right? They, they become fearful. Um, sinful creatures, when they discover that they are standing in the presence of a holy God, become terrified, Right? And so this is, this is where you know, John Piper talks about the righteousness of God. I love the way he describes it. He says the, righteous, the imputed righteousness of Christ is like a fireproof suit that enables us to enter into the presence of God's blazing glory and not be incinerated. We, we will enjoy it. We will bask in his glory only because we are cloaked in Christ's righteousness. But the unbeliever doesn't have that. The unbeliever is brought into the unmitigated glory of Christ, of God, and it torments them. So this is what's fascinating. And if you're wondering, I get a lot of this from John Gershner's uh, sixth series on Heaven and Hell. Did you listen to that? It was good, wasn't it? So John Gershner talks about this, uh, so, and it's better in his voice. Grumble uh, more. Yeah. So here's the amazing thing is that, is that there's no real difference between heaven and hell. It's, your perception. It's, it's who's there, right? Now, that's not to say it's the same place. It's not the same place. But heaven is believers are brought into the full glory of God, and we enjoy it because we are sinless. We are covered in the blood of Christ. We are cloaked in his righteousness, and we're brought into the very presence of God's glory, and it is magnificent, unbelievers are brought into the very presence of god's glory and it torments them they cannot stand it but they can't run from it they can't hide from it they can't get away from it and you see that's what god's restraining on unbelievers god's restraining that he's holding back but someday when they go to hell here i am and it's like it's like being brought like a, a a bug being brought right up against this Billion megawatt light bulb and just held there for all of eternity, and they're not going to die. You know they're going to feel it. They're going to feel the pain. They're going to see the brightness. It'll torment them, but they can't escape. They will not die. It will simply torment them, and it is the glory of God that does that. So again, you you said there was two things hell was not. One was not eternal separation from God, and the other. It's not eternal separation from from God. Oh, and I said, um, well, I said that um, God is there. It's not eternal separation from God. So God is
1: not void from
0: hell. Right, right. God is God is not void from from there. God is present there, and hell is not eternal separation from God. So the other thing, and maybe this is what I was thinking, um, is you know people so i've already answered the question but people have asked people go round and round about this you know i've had people come to me and say well okay how is hell a place of fire right the bible talks about a place of fire but in other places it says it's a place of eternal darkness right and if you're a spirit how is our spirit tormented And, and and so the answer to that is that those are all Um, visual descriptions that the Bible uses to communicate the severity of hell, right? Um, It's just, it it is a place that is very severe. Remember, the Bible is trying to use human language to describe what hell is, and for us, being, you know, immersed in fire would be horrible, or being in absolute darkness is quite frightening. I've, I've experienced it once, Uh, when we took a tour of uh, Mammoth Cave in Kentucky, uh, went way deep, and at one point they say, all right, we're going to turn the lights off, and we're going to leave them off for a few minutes so your eyes can adjust, and uh, they turn the lights off, and after a few minutes, doesn't matter. Can't see. Pitch dark. And yeah, you start to kind of panic, like, okay, this is kind of scary. Can we turn the lights on now? I mean, just pitch darkness, right? So the Bible is using this kind of language to help us understand, but... I don't think it's actual flames shooting up i don't think it's actual darkness i think it is unbelievers being immersed into the unmitigated glory of god and it will torment them for all of eternity right right um yes kelsey i don't understand when you say like how god is
1: basically tormenting us in hell i thought that like lucifer did all of that and like i thought that he was the one mm-hmm. that brings the unbelievers down to hell how come God is doing the
0: wrath on men and not them? Right. It's not the devil. The Bible never tells us that. That's something that we see in cartoons and movies and stuff like that. It is it is God who punishes unbelievers for their sin and disobedience. God does that. He rewards and he punishes. All right, so um So God's anger actively burns against those who continue to snub their nose at him. And of course you can't Finish a lesson like this without quoting from "Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God." Um, it, it came to mind, and so I went back and I reread the whole thing. And uh, boy, this is uh, this is uh, something you should uh, you should read as a family for your family worship time. Um, here's one paragraph, uh, the the way Jonathan Edwards describes it, and he says, "Quote the God that holds you over the pit of hell." Much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. You are 10,000 times more abominable in his eyes than the most hateful, venomous serpent in ours. You have offended him infinitely, More than ever a stubborn rebel did his prince, and yet it is nothing but his hand that holds you from falling into the fire every moment. It is to be ascribed to nothing else that you did not go to hell the last night that you were suffered to awake again in this world after you closed your eyes to sleep, and there is no other reason to be given why you have not dropped into hell since you arose in the morning But that God's hand has held you up. So he describes it for every unbeliever out there, they're like a spider that God is dangling by the web over the flames of hell. And at any moment, he can choose to just let them go. And the only reason he doesn't is because of his mercy. He gives them another day to repent of their sins, he gives them one more opportunity. But there comes a point where God says I've had enough and he drops him into the flames of eternal torment in the end eternal life is not just avoiding hell right eternal life is not just going to heaven eternal life truly having eternal life is knowing Christ in all of his beauty in all of his glory And savoring Christ and pursuing Christ, that's what it means, and that's what it looks like to have eternal life.
1: Okay, can I just make sure that I have this down right? Basically, in simple words, the glory of God is held uh, back from the unbelievers, Mm -hmm. and that's what's so terrifying.
0: Yes. The full glory of God. Right. Because we we see his glory in creation, Romans 1, right? Creation bears testimony to the existence of God and his glory. Uh, We saw the glory of God in Christ, right? John chapter 1. Um, He became flesh and we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten Son. So we do see God's glory here, but we don't experience the full glory of God until this life is over. And for some, it will be wonderful. For others, it will be their greatest nightmare. Right Don't you agree with eternal life is actually in the here and now? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Because that that's what Jesus says, right? This is eternal life to know you and to know his son. So when we know God and we know his son, we are experiencing eternal life in the here and now. Absolutely. Yep. It starts now. It starts at conversion. Eternal life begins. So Well, let's close in prayer, shall we?